Tonight's reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 11. It can be found on page 314 of the Church Bibles. So that's 2 Samuel chapter 11 on page 314. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman washing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, Haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubasheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from a wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had said to him. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us, and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. 
Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say to this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. This is God's word. Good evening. My name is Phil. I'm the associate vicar. And yes, we have a very serious passage to deal with tonight. Before we get there, though, um, let me just uh, read the bands for the last time of Andrew Gordon Jack and Grace Elizabeth Diane Harrison. This is for the third time of asking if any of you know any reason in law why they should not marry. You are to declare it now. Let me pray, and we'll turn to this. Uh, rightly famous and terrifying passage in God's word together. Lord God, we pray that your spirit would be active amongst us tonight. Help us, we pray, to do much more than just understand these words. Father, drive them into our hearts. Drive us away from sin. Drive us to the Savior Jesus Christ for his glory and our eternal good. Amen. I was uh, chatting with a, a neighbour last week. I know in London it's possible, incredible. Uh, it's only taken us four years, but we got beyond talking about sport and we got into politics. And he told me that the, the greatest day in, in many ways of his, uh, his young adult life was the election of Tony Blair, New Labour, 1997. Most of you weren't born, I know. It was a big deal, though. It was a very big deal at the time. And he said, um, we were talking about disappointments, and he said... When Blair invaded Iraq on that lie, I was just devastated. He was a politician I'd actually believed in. And to think that he could take us to war on a lie, I, j- I just still can't believe it happened. Now, perhaps you're all far too cynical to ever believe that any politician is really telling you the truth. But I've had a number of conversations with people here in deep anguish over the fall of a trusted Christian leader who you'd looked up to, you followed, you'd been shaped by, and then you find out, oh, for all the appearance of good, they were quite an abusive bully, actually. And you think, how can someone I trusted so much turn out to be like that? I mean, they appeared so holy. They appeared so humble. They appeared so godly. I guess for others here, the question comes in a much more personal form. We ourselves have done things which, if you'd asked us 10 years ago, we'd have said, there is no way in a million years I would ever do something like that. And yet, we sit here tonight and that, that cold feeling inside comes when we think back to what we've done. Where here in 2 Samuel 11, we learn how the very best can fall. And it is a sober warning to every single one of us tonight. See, I think that too many of us are just naive about the state of our own hearts. We think there is no way I would do whatever it is. But Jeremiah 17.9 warns us, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? 
So let us learn together from the example of David. Because we learn here that even the best of us can do terrible, terrible things. And David really was the best of us. This is a guy who, when he was a young teenager, was so courageous that he took on a seasoned warrior, the giant Goliath, because he insulted God. This is a guy with such a deep, rich devotion to God that he wrote almost all of the book of Psalms, the richest, most beautiful poems of love to God, penned by any human ever. If this man, the man described as the man after God's own heart, can fall in such a wicked and disgraceful way, then do not be a fool and think, I could never. Don't be naive and don't be complacent. Do we really think, hey, look, I'm braver than David was. I confront up to sin. I've got a richer relationship with God than David. I won't fall into temptation. Learn. Learn from David how sin happens. Now, I guess um, there'll be some among us who wouldn't call ourselves Christians tonight. You think, wow, what a weird night to come to church. All I'm going to learn about is Christians beating themselves up over sin. Well, actually, there's two things. One, I think, look at what the Bible says about how the human heart works. And you tell me afterwards if you think it's unrealistic. And the second thing is you can learn an awful lot about an ideology from how it speaks about the failings of its fated leaders, how honest it's able to be. You've got, uh, you've got the outline on the, in the back of our trendy new service sheets and you'll see just two points, minimalist service sheet, minimalist outline, how sin happens and what sin does. Let's have a look at the passage together. Uh, how sin happens. Firstly, sin does not happen deliberately. Sin does not happen deliberately. Look, we don't read, if you look down at verse, um, verse 2, we don't read, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David decided, I'm going to take her, I'm going to have sex with her and then if she's married I'll just kill her husband and then I'll probably involve a whole heap of my officials in some morbid cover-up uh, just by abusing my authority. I mean, <laughs> sin doesn't happen like that. It's almost never that we plan the end. But you can learn a lot from the circumstances of David's sin. And it begins with this seemingly innocuous verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. He does a lot of sending and not enough going in this passage. He should have been out in the field with the army. That's where he was meant to be. And how often do we get in trouble just because... Just in the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, it's a whole lot harder to get in trouble with drinking too much if I leave the bar before everybody else starts really hitting it hard. It's just a whole lot harder for that to happen. It's a whole lot harder for me to well, get caught up in yeah, unhelpful carryings on at work if... I decide, look, the culture of this team is just unhealthy and I move. David is in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's where it always starts. Interestingly, he's also in a good place having a good time. <laughs> Not only in the wrong place at the wrong time, he's in a good place having a good time. What do I mean? Where he spent uh, the previous almost 30 years as a fugitive, fighting battles, in a civil war, fighting for the throne. 
And at last, at last he's at peace. At last his kingdom is established. At last he's got a palace. At last the enemies, the final set of enemies who've been attacking them from all around, the Ammonites, are being subdued. Finally, David is at peace and David is secure. And it's stunning when you read through the Old Testament how often God's people fall into mess and sin after they've finished a period of struggle, a period of opposition, a period of fighting, and now they're at comfort and at ease and the defenses get dropped. That's the same for you and me. When hardship and danger pass, that's often the time when everything goes horribly wrong. And yet the odd thing is, think about your prayer life. If you're anything like me, proportion of prayer, if, if this is comfort and worldly security, how much of your prayer life is that? Right. Most of our prayer life is, God give me comfort, God give me security. And yet so often in the Bible, when people have comfort and security, they make a right mess. Sin doesn't happen deliberately. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time. But that's not the whole story because actually if you've been listening with us through 1 and 2 Samuel and you've followed David's story, you'd have to conclude it doesn't actually happen by accident. Now how can I say that? Well what I mean is, uh, look, it's true. I don't think David sets out to sin. But he has over years cultivated habits and tolerated behaviours that have made what happens here, if not inevitable, then certainly very likely. I mean, his interactions with women should have set alarm bells ringing years ago. God's will for marriage is one man, one woman for life. He sets that out in Genesis 2. God's will for the kings of Israel in Deuteronomy 17 is you must not take lots of wives. Stop trying to be like the other nations. But David marries again and again and again. He marries for love. He marries for political alliance. He marries just because she looks hot. And by this point, he's got at least seven wives and ten concubines. Now, Hebrew is a subtle language, but it is notable in the first paragraph that Bathsheba is referred to by name just once. And that's not David speaking. To him, she is just the woman. He has developed the habit of seeing women as something to be taken when he wants one. When he sees a woman and he wants her, he takes her. Women are just the necessary means for satisfying his lustful desires. And so when he sees Bathsheba from the rooftop, his actions were shaped by years of wrongful ways of relating to women. So it's not just the story of a, of a man who just happened to find himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's also the story of a man who cultivated seriously unhealthy habits and paid the consequences. Lastly, sin doesn't happen without warning. Now, David has started down a dangerous path. The moment we read in verse 2, he got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace, and he saw a woman washing, and she was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. But at that point, he has, he's still a long way from committing adultery and murder. 
And then in his kindness, as God sees David sleepwalking to danger, he delivers a verbal slap round the face to wake him up and turn him round. Do you, do you hear the punchline? Look at what the courtier saves for last. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David, she's someone's wife. Now, there are lots of wonderful promises in Scripture. It's full of wonderful promises. But one that I think few of us treasure enough is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, which reads, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. God always provides an exit ramp. God always provides an escape hatch before it's too late. You know, that text from a friend that pings in just as you were the housemate who comes home unexpectedly early. The comment that's made in a sermon when they couldn't possibly have known what was going on in your life. Look, when God gives you an exit, take it. David doesn't, and look what happens. The rest of the chapter tells us the consequences are tragic. Verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. Now what follows is a graphic study in how sin grows and what sin does. And the misery which flows when we give in to sinful desire. Now look, I'm not saying if you indulge us in a lustful look on the way home from church tonight, you will become a murderer tomorrow. I'm not saying that at all. The point is, learn the pattern of how sin works. The detail will look different in each of our lives. But here, God shows us the pattern of how sin works. Learn the lessons of David rather than learn them in tragedy in your own life. So, um, we're going we're gonna to look through and I hope we'll heed the warning because I think that when it comes to sin, lots of us are like uh, children in a war zone. We find a, a grenade and think it's a toy and we're tossing around this thing and having fun and we have no idea the danger that we're fooling around with. Firstly, we, we see sin spreads, sin spreads. Now Genesis chapter 3 records what's known as the fall. The very first humans, our, our great ancestors, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God. And quickly, the, the effects of that disobedience, that rebellion against God, spread. Misery and wickedness just come flooding into the world. And soon there's lying and abuse and theft and murder. And the sin spreads uncontrollably like a contagious disease released from a lab. And the historian who wrote 2 Samuel 11 hints that this is another fall. Not of the whole world this time, but of the kingdom of God. There are three key words which appear in Genesis 3.6 as it describes Adam and Eve being tempted by the fruit. Saw, good, took. And in the original, as David sees Bathsheba, we read the same three words. He saw her, she looked good, he took her. Same three words. The writer wants us to see this is another fall. And just as with Genesis, the miserable harm of sin just floods through. This beautiful kingdom we've seen in the previous weeks of, of justice and kindness and love and generosity and forgiveness. 
that has been built up painstakingly over years of, of fight and courage is just destroyed in a matter of days. Now for David, it begins with a lustful look. Not the noticing that she's beautiful, but the greedy-eyed leering, the devouring her with his gaze. But of course he wants more. And so he has her brought to him and he has sex with her. Now we're not told anything about whether she came willingly or not. But given her vulnerability with her husband away at war, and given the power imbalance, meaningful consent must have been almost impossible. But that doesn't matter to David. Sin just wants more. And so David takes more. You know, the same is true for you and me. If you could ask your lust or your greed or your self-righteousness or your gossip, look, how much until you're satisfied and I can stop? The answer would always be the same. Just a little bit more. You, you can never satisfy a desire which wants more. Because as soon as, as soon as you've been there, as soon as you've done that, and, well, soon enough, just another time, just a little more. Sin always wants more, and sin always spreads deeper and wider than we dared imagine it would. You can't control it, as David discovers. I mean, can you imagine, verse 5, how these words must have hit him? The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. A second slap round the face and wake up call to God. It would cost much more to, to repent now, but not as much as it will cost later. But instead of so stopping and repenting and coming back to God, he does what we so often do. He, he thinks, sin has got me into trouble, so I'll sin my way out of trouble. What a fool. I'll sin my way out of trouble by scheming and lying. And we'll look at, in a moment, at the attempted cover-up with Uriah. But when that fails, we see the progression of sin further still. Now David will plunge into deeper evil and involve more people in his wickedness. Uh, join with me at verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah in the front with a fighting's fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. See, this clinical plan, it's not just one man who dies. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. What a mess. He determines, look, the only thing to be done is to kill Uriah. But he doesn't do it himself. Does he think it's less wicked if it's, if it's actually he's killed in battle by enemy soldiers? At least his family can say he died nobly then. What a kind gesture, David. But instead, actually, he has to involve Joab, the general, and presumably a number of the commanders and other soldiers in this wicked plan. And more men die because of it. The sin just keeps growing, keeps spreading, keeps infecting. The tentacles reach further and further. And at the bottom of the slope is death. God warned Adam and Eve in Genesis 2.17 what lay at the end behind the beautiful packaging of sin. He said, if you disobey this rule, on the day you eat it, you will die. That's where sin always ultimately leads, death. 
We were looking this morning at Proverbs. and Sam showed us um, Proverbs 2.18. Speaking of sexual sin, surely her house leads to death. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. So please, let me plead with you. Don't fool yourself. You cannot control sinful desires. You cannot cover them up in the long run. The only way out is to turn around, to turn back to God and cry out for his help. Sin spreads, then sin corrupts. Now we'll look at the middle of the passage with Uriah and the the pathetic, tragic attempt at a cover-up. And we see how sin corrupts David's character. We've seen his forgiveness, his his unwillingness to, to strike down even people who deserve death out of kindness. His undeserved love for Mephibosheth last week. And yet, look what happens to him. Verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent to him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come home from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? Surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. The contrast is striking. A foreign-born soldier honors God better than Israel's king. Back from months living rough in the wilderness, he honors his brothers in arms and the God he serves by refusing what is rightly his, a night at home with his wife. David, living in comfort and ease, shames the soldiers and God by taking what was never his to touch. So David makes one last attempt at a neat cover-up. Sending Uriah home with a, with a basket of wine and some essential oils and whatever didn't work. So he tries something else. Verse 12, then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Uriah is a better man drunk than David is sober. That's what sin has done to David. And so now David does what he has to do. And he enacts the wicked murder. In the morning, David wrote his letter and sent it with Joab. And the extraordinary thing is, David knows at this point, Uriah is so noble that I can send a letter calling for his execution and get him to take it because he's not the kind of man who would ever open a letter. Look at what David has become. He welcomed just a little sin, one lustful look, and he has become a murderer. The story of the Trojan horse is one of the best known of classical tales. I think it's so well known that, I, plot spoiler, i you know what happens. I, I, I trust, you know, no one's going to say to me afterwards, as sometimes happens, how could you ruin the story? This you ought to know. So um, the, the siege of Troy, 10-year war, and the Greeks have failed to take the city of Troy. 
And then Odysseus, cunning, wily Odysseus, comes up with his ruse. The Greek fleet will sail away as if they are um, retreating with their tails between their legs in defeat. And they'll leave as an offering for the Trojans this great wooden horse on the plain outside the city. But of course, inside the wooden horse are Odysseus and some soldiers. And the Trojans come out and they think, this is brilliant. The Greeks have been beaten. We've defeated them. Ten years of battle. Achilles and all his might, we've defeated the lot of them. And in spite of the priest Laocon's warning, they take the horse into the city. And then they get riotously drunk and fall asleep. And as things go quiet in the wee hours of the morning, Odysseus and his soldiers slip out of the horse, open the gates. And the Greeks, who'd never really gone, poured in and they slaughter everyone and raise the city to the ground the enemies of God failed to defeat David in battle just like the Greeks failed to defeat the Trojans but then David opened his heart to lust and welcomed it in like the Trojans did with the horse just a bit of fun between adults I mean no real harm can come from it Sin never, never, never comes as a servant to serve your desires. Sin always comes as a master to enslave you, as a disease to infect, as a thief to steal, and as a fire to destroy. Do not mess with sin. Lastly, verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. I wonder, did David breathe a sigh of relief? Heavy-hearted, perhaps, but at least it's over. Did he say to himself, look, I've learned my lesson. I'm never taking another wife. No more lying, no more abusing authority. In fact, in fact, the fact that I've done this is just going to serve as, a, as a, a reminder, a prompt to make sure I rule with integrity and justice and fairness for the rest of my reign. This will make me a better man. But he's forgotten one thing, one not so small thing. He spent the chapter looking down from his roof, scheming in his mind, lusting in his heart, sending out messengers. Not once has he looked up. He has ignored God entirely. But God has not ignored him. And the last phrase here is perhaps one of the most ominous in all of Scripture. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Have you ever had that experience when you're out hiking and you're a long way from shelter and you notice the sky has just got a bit dark and there's this breeze starts to ripple and then you hear the thunder and you realize there is a storm coming. 
in verse 25, when David reassured the messenger, if you turn back to verse 25 for a moment, he said, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Literally, it reads, say this to Joab, don't let this be evil in your eyes. And literally, verse 27 reads, the thing David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. David thinks it's over and he's got away with it now. He's tied up all the loose ends. But there is something infinitely worse than it becoming known as a scandal in Israel that he's done He's, you know, he's cheated on Uriah and got his wife pregnant. There's something far, far worse than that becoming known in Israel. And that is that what he has done is known in heaven. And in God's eyes, it's not a scandal for the tabloids. It's evil. And it reminds us, stop making purely human calculations. The first and most important question to ask as any of us wrestle with ethical questions is what does God think about it? What does God think about how I speak to my colleagues? What does God think about how I behave with my girlfriend behind closed doors? What does God think about it? If sin doesn't stop being evil when it's committed by God's anointed king with whom his eternal covenant is made, then do not for a moment think God doesn't look on our actions and find them evil. Now we will see in the coming weeks how this miserable account only gets worse as the consequences play out in the coming chapter. But how should we respond to what we have here before us tonight? Firstly, flee from temptation. All sin is toxic, all sin is addictive, all sin is deceiving, and all sin is deadly. But this passage focuses particularly on the misery that comes from sexual sin. So let's begin there. Now it's very noticeable, the Bible never tells us to fight sexual sin. Isn't that surprising? The Bible never says fight sexual sin. It says run away, flee. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Don't try and be strong. Try and run away. Maybe it's a recognition of, of the strength of sexual desire. Maybe it's the ease with which we deceive ourselves. But we're told that when we realize we're facing sexual temptation, the godly man or woman doesn't think, well, here's an opportunity to show how mature I am. How strong I am? No, they run away. Now some here in a congregation this size and of your ages are bound to be in that situation. Do not think you're strong enough. Don't be a fool. Flee while you have the chance. Now if it's not too corny, and the problem for, the trouble for David began when he was in the wrong place. He was on the rooftop. And perhaps it's helpful to ask where the rooftop might be in our lives. The, the place or the situation that I'm just better off avoiding because of the temptation. For some of us, maybe the rooftop is a particular slot at the gym. You know that guy, that girl will be there. You may not have yet exchanged numbers, but it's only a matter of time. Stop going at that time. 
It may be the rooftop for you is actually, well, it's two or three drinks. Any more than that, and you're just prone to do stuff you wouldn't do if you've only had a couple. Maybe the rooftop is having your smartphone in your room at night. Maybe the rooftop is being alone in your room with your other half. You see, playing with lust, or, or any sin for that matter, it's like rock climbing without ropes. I remember when I, I used to help run a Christian kids camp and I helped teach rock climbing. And the guy who led the rock climbing there, Jeremy, was a brilliant climber, but he never climbed when he was at camp with us because um, he, he couldn't really. He'd become really addicted to rock climbing as a younger man. And so he started to get into free soloing, climbing without ropes, and he was very good. But then one evening, he just made one mistake. Just one mistake. Now, he was lucky. He just broke his back, spent six months in hospital, and walks with a limp for the rest of his life. But if you play with a dangerous thing like gravity, the chances are sometime you're going to fall. And it doesn't matter how skillful you are as a climber. It doesn't matter that your aim is not to fall. If you do it for long enough, the odds are you will slip eventually. And the same goes for sin. And sin is much more deadly than gravity. Flee from temptation. Secondly, repent from sin. I guess for some of us, we think it would be lovely if I could turn away from temptation, but I'm way past that point. Uh, Some here, I imagine there'll be people having affairs or who are visiting prostitutes or are hopelessly addicted to porn. Or or maybe it's a completely other category of sin when you think of addiction to sin. It's your speaking, your spending, your hating, your coveting. But if the Holy Spirit is prompting your conscience tonight, then do not resist him. Do what Jesus commands and repent turn away from sin and turn to Jesus he will help and sin is like fungus it grows best in the dark so if you're in that dark place turn to a friend for help get the light of another in tell someone at church tonight a Christian friend a Christian leader flee from temptation repent from sin and lastly look to Jesus see It's very easy to read 2 Samuel 11 and conclude, oh, well, David is just not the leader we hoped for. I guess it, you know, it shows that David is just far worse. So we need to find another, a better person. But actually, that's not what's going on here. David is the best. But this shows what even the best of us is actually capable of. And that is a scary thing. It makes you realize why our ultimate hope can never be a human leader. And actually, this is why the Bible is able to be so searingly honest about the failings of all the human leaders. I mean, it's extraordinary when you you compare it with with other political or religious tracts, how the Bible talks down and exposes the filthy linen of its leaders. It's because the great hope of the Bible is, is not you or me or any great Christian leader. The great hope of the Bible is that we'll recognize that all humans are fallen. All humans fail and sin. And we need Jesus, the king who never sinned, the king who always used his power to bless others and never to protect himself. 
the king all of us can trust in. But as we look at sin tonight, the most wonderful thing about Jesus is actually not that he is our perfect king, but that he is our sufficient sacrifice. See, he didn't come as your religious life coach to tell you how to be the best version of you if you'll just follow these commands. He came as the sacrifice to die in your place, to pay for the sins of David and you and me, to provide the forgiveness that this chapter makes us long for so desperately. We began the service with some verses from Psalm 32, verses written by this man, David. Let me close with them tonight. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. And did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Let's do that now. Lord God, for all the good and wonderful characteristics of everybody in this room, we all share one thing in common, and that is that we are sinners. Our Father God, help us be honest about this. Our Father God, help us not to be naive or complacent. Help us to hear the warnings of 2 Samuel 11. Help us to flee from temptation. Help us to repent where we are caught in sin and help us to turn to Jesus thank you that when we do so we find not just the strength to change by your Holy Spirit but we find in Christ crucified on the cross our every sin paid for in full and the power of sin broken forever thank you we pray for Jesus Amen